All right. Hello, everyone. It has been a while. Um, thank you all for waiting. Also, this episode <laughs> written out is 20 pages long. So, yeah, not sure how long it's going to be in recording, but we will see. Um, just some housekeeping. New episode transcripts have been uploaded to the Primordia podcast website, which you can find a link for in the podcast description. And I am making what I feel to be much-needed changes to the Primordia sites, um, the regular Primordia site as well as, or the main site as well as the podcast site, including maybe changing things up to a site dedicated to a non-spooky blog about side gigs and other income opportunities for those who may be struggling or looking for something different than the usual boring and shitty job with boring and shitty management. So yeah, there's that too. Also, I wanted to offer all listeners a coupon for the Etsy shop if you're interested. So I'll link that in the episode description below. Um, just head on over to our Etsy shop to browse our leftovers. Use the code STAYSTRANGE at checkout, no spaces, and receive 30% off of your entire order. Thank you so much for listening, as always. Now, we can dive into this very special 13th episode of the Primordia podcast, in which we will discuss Forsaken Goddesses. We're going to talk about the all-powerful woman, the feminine divine, the mother of all mothers, depending on who you talk to, and explore the adversity that Lilith, Lamashtu, Inanna, and Medusa all faced to gain the ranks they hold. Now, even though it is long, this is just going to scratch the surface as far as the material that I wanted to cover, uh, so who knows, there might be a part two. Speaking of the mother of all mothers, I want to kick this off with Lilith. To some, she's just an evil, vile demoness who lusts after men and sometimes eats babies. If you look deeper, though, you'll find a different portrayal. Well, a bit different, anyways. <laughs> now, we're going to also take a look at other representations or likenesses of Lilith, if you will, like Lamashtu and Inanna, but we'll get to all of that in a bit. For now, let's focus on Lilith, as mentioned briefly in the Talmud, the Alphabet of Ben Sirah, and other literary gems. Let me just say now that I'm not an expert or anything of the sorts on Lilith or demonology or the study of angels or the likes. I studied religion and anthropology in and out of college and I practice things. So I find this shit fascinating and I love exploring the different perspectives found amongst different cultures and religions. Ancient Sumerians named their storm demons and later their night demons, Lilim, the male demons being called Lilu, and the females were the Lila or Lilitu. Many Sumerians believed that these demons would attack people in their sleep and drain their life force sexually. Sometimes they would copulate and try to breed with humans as well to create little demon spawn. And so this is where Lilith comes in, at least in the ancient Sumerian mythos and culture. In various texts and tablets pieced together from as early as 3000 BCE, we can pick out and decipher a few instances where Lilith, or at least the Lila Lilitu from which her name originated, is mentioned. In Stephen Herbert Langdon's fifth volume of work in his series on mythology, titled The Mythology of All Races, Volume 5, Semitic, 
He lists these instances found in ancient poems and other tales from Akkadian, Babylonian, and Sumerian texts. The first mention of Lilith is as Lilitu or Ardot Lily, which loosely translates to handmaid or maid of Lilu. Again, these were wind demons who, in their female forms, would influence men sexually during the night to beget demon babies. Ardot Lily or Lilitu is apparently one of 12 original or older demons of Babylon and Sumer, and her name is mentioned, along with other demons, in an old text which reads as follows. He against whom the wicked Utuku hurled himself, whom in his bed the wicked Alu covered, whom the wicked ghost by night overwhelmed, whom the great Galu assaulted, whose limbs the wicked god lacerated, whom Lamashtu possessed with a seizing hand, whom Labasu overwhelmed, whom the Caesar fastened upon, whom the maid of Lilu chose, the man whom the maid of Lilu pressed to her bosom. Now, Lilith is actually only briefly mentioned in the actual Bible, I guess, or maybe the uh, Christian versions of the Bible, I should say. I should say that, yeah. Uh, full disclosure, actually, I've not <laughs> really read much of a Bible ever, so don't come at me. Um, if I misinterpret, or, I mean, everything is up to individual interpretation, right? But if I misinterpret or misread anything, you can, I mean, feel free to correct me. I'm, I won't take it personally, and I, uh, will just grow from it. Anyways. Let's go from a translation of the original Hebrew version of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 34, 14, which reads, Wildcats shall meet hyenas, goat demons shall greet each other, there too the Lilith shall repose and find herself a resting place. Oh my god, sorry. I had a dog toy under my butt and I had to remove it. It was not there on purpose, I promise. The Lilithu survived and made their way into Jewish mythology, which is where we start getting into the well-known versions of Lilith we hear of and see today. In Jewish mythology, for instance, men were warned not to sleep alone for fear that they would fall victim to Lilith and her sexual charms. There are a couple of passages and a translation of the Zohar where Lilith is discussed. The first passage is as follows. Before Israel went into captivity, and while the Shekinah was still with them, God commanded Israel, Thou shalt not uncover thy mother's nakedness. And this captivity is the uncovering of the nakedness of the Shekinah, as it is written, On account of your sins your mother has been put away. For the sin of unchastity Israel has been sent into captivity in the Shekinah also, and this is the uncovering of the Shekinah. This unchastity is Lilith, the mother of the mixed multitude. The second passage talks about Samael, and Lilith is a smidge of a mention, but here it is. The distinction between right and left in the Zohar corresponds not only to the distinction between reward and punishment in the next world, but also between good and evil, and specifically moral good and evil in this world. Samael, the power of evil, the tempter, the accuser, the evil serpent, is placed on the left and is identified with the great Geburah. I'm probably saying that wrong. Now, Samael is represented as the opponent not of Hesed, but of Tifereth, identified with the archangel Michael. He is the great dragon 
who on New Year swallows the moon, that is, prevents the union of the Matrona with the Holy King, until Israel, by their sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, induce him to desist. He also, by means of his minions, Lilith and others, seduces men to defile their souls, contrary to the desire of the Holy King. Flipping back through the old Bible, let's dip into the Hebrew or biblical creation myth, which originally features a female that many believe to be Lilith. Here's a few bits from Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, maybe? Is that how you read that? Okay. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. They shall rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the cattle, the whole earth, and all the creeping things that creep on earth. And God created man in his image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fertile and increase, fill the earth and master it, and rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the living things that creep on earth. And here's female creation take two. (laughs) When one didn't go so well, I guess. This is Genesis Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Okay. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a fitting helper for him. And the Lord God formed out of the earth and all the wild beasts and all the birds of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that would be its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to all the wild beasts, but for Adam no fitting helper was found. So the Lord God cast a deep sleep upon man, and while he slept, he took one of his sides and closed up the flesh at that spot. And the Lord God fashioned the side that he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman. And from man she was taken. Hence a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, so that they may become one flesh. The two of them were naked, the man and his wife, yet they felt no shame. So why are there two different instances in which God creates a female companion to the male Adam? This is where the alphabet of Ben Sirah comes in, Perceived by many as a midrash, which is a commentary made to resolve conflicting or confusing, difficult principles, interpretations, etc. of biblical texts and like rabbinical stuff. So the alphabet of Ben Sirah was written anonymously, though it is sometimes thought to be the work of the scribe Ben Sirah himself. It's honestly a fascinating explanation, if you will, on the origin of Lilith as the original Eve, or at least the original woman counterpart to Adam. According to the alphabet, Lilith was created as the original female half of the divine in flesh, though due to her persistence of equality in bed, she uttered the ineffable name of God and flew off, later being cursed by a group of angels sent by God to hunt her down. And hunt her down, basically, and make her pay for her indiscretions. Bear with me, this episode is full of excerpts. <laughs> Here's what the alphabet of Ben Sirah says about Lilith. After God created Adam, who was alone, he said, It is not good for man to be alone. Then He then created a woman for Adam from the earth, as he had created Adam himself, and called her Lilith. 
Adam and Lilith immediately began to fight. She said, I will not lie below. And he said, I will not lie beneath you, but only on top, for you are fit only to be in the bottom position, while I am to be the superior one. Fucking asshole. Lilith responded, we are equal to each other in as much as we were both created from the earth, but they would not listen to one another. When Lilith saw this, she pronounced the ineffable name and flew away into the air. Adam stood in prayer before his creator. Sovereign of the universe, he said, the woman you gave me has run away. At once, the Holy One, blessed be he, sent these three angels, Sinoi, Sanzanoi, and Semengalof, to bring her back. Said the Holy One to Adam, if she agrees to come back, what is made... What is made is good. If not, she must permit 100 of her children to die every day. The angels left God and pursued Lilith, whom they overtook in the midst of the sea, in the mighty waters wherein the Egyptians were destined to drown. They told her God's word, but she did not wish to return. The angels said, We shall drown you in the sea. Leave me alone! <laughs> She said, I was created only to cause sickness to infants. If the infant is male, I have dominion over him for eight days after his birth, and if female, for twenty days. When the angels heard Lilith's words, they insisted she go back. But she swore to them by the name of the living and eternal God, Whenever I see you or your names or your forms in an amulet, I will have no power over that infant. She also agreed to have one hundred of her children die every day. Accordingly, every day 100 demons perish, and for the same reason, rewrite the angels' names on the amulets of young children. When when Lilith sees their names, she remembers her oath and the children, and the child recovers. Besides religious texts, Lilith plays a star role in her fair share of literature as well. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe wrote a play, wrote the play, Faust in the late 1700s, and it saw its first performance in 1808. Well, I mean, I guess it was like his adaptation of an old folk tale or something. Anyways, Faust tells tells of a dude named Faust who meets up with Mephistopheles and sells his soul to him for knowledge and, you know, the works. We're obviously not here to discuss the play, but rather Lilith's appearance within it. There are, of course, several different translations of this work, but I particularly liked David Luke's translation, which is, Faust says, What woman's that? To which Mephistopheles replies, Look at her carefully. Her name is Lilith. Faust asks, Who? Mephistopheles says, Adam's first wife, beware. There is strong magic in her hair. She needs no other ornament, that net, can catch young men and doesn't let her victims go again so easily. And, you know, just to play the devil's advocate, here's another translation, though I honestly can't remember who by. Whoops. Faust says, But who is that? Mephistopheles responds, Note her especially, tis Lilith. Faust, who? Mephistopheles, Adam's first wife is she, beware the lure within her lovely tresses, the splendid sole adornment of her hair, when she succeeds therewith a youth to snare, not soon again she frees him from her jesses. I guess I like that one too. Lilith is again featured in Judith Plaskov's work titled The Coming of Lilith, Essays on Feminism, Judaism, and Sexual Ethics, 1972-2003. 
which covers large ground as sort of a modern midrash toward the aforementioned subjects. Don't worry, we're not going to get into this one, but I wanted to mention it, and I will also add it to the reading recommendations so you can write it down with the other ones if you want to read them, you know, or thought, you know, thought consume it later. Plasgov's rendition of Lilith is that of a powerhouse of feminism, or rather, she is portrayed as like the world's first feminist, and a goddess scorned. It's basically a cool spin on the alphabet of Ben Sirach version of Lilith, and her origin is the first female, at least in my opinion, and her journey as a symbol of divine, raging feminism in today's world. This last Lilith-related work we'll be looking at is Pamela Hadass's The Passion of Lilith. Now, I couldn't find a physical copy or a full electronic copy of this poem anywhere, but I did find an article that covers parts of it that I like, so I'll link that in the sources for you all. With that being said, let's dive into the last excerpt in this section. 1. The Creation and when God saw the sea by light, he caught his breath. Two, the created. Swept from the surface, trapped in unutterable black, a star collapsed, reversed, a diamond too deep depressed. I thought I'd never come back to be light and ease. Until, with his last self-praise riding astride the very not the good, I rushed into the world, disheveled, contraband, neither hell whelped nor heaven pedigreed, a creation preeminently out of hand, ready to finger the world, bitch, breed. 3. The Garden On the other side from order, the unintended bride, one part gasp, one part express, careless of symmetry, regardless of time. What had the likes of me to do with the likes of Adam? Yet by a fur whim or black humor of him, we were thrown together, clay, sun, and glaze of moon, one real garden with imaginary goad, spitting image and spat upon, Adam named and I with pseudonym, man plus manifold, sure to explode, belief and make-believe, alike, alone. Then Adam nearly drove me mad, my original gaping letterman, docile as a stamp and bland as logic, flapping forever the divine right of his real estate at my obvious lack of properties. I tried at first to please open my box of miracles for him. He only wanted to hoe the peas, he wanted his birds in his hand, all mine gladly beat around the bush. I wove an arbor, bindweed and angel's bane, he wouldn't enter in. He wouldn't lie under my crazy quilts or improvise, he'd rather die. He had the word, had it from on high, while I, previous to alphabets, super, superfluous as ampersand, curled on chaos still, my edges blurred. Gardens are made for orderers, gardeners made to order, but I am disorderable, the first trespasser. So as Adam was carefully hedging his bitties and hugging the hedge, and while angels were wearing, warring and setting God's teeth on edge, misfit and mislaid, I fled. I gave a damn, and I left my first love sucking his green thumb. So it skips part four. Uh, in the article, but part five, the desert. Out of the woods, here's my hard light, clean slate, the vulture rings me gold. The lion roars me blood, rocks mimic life in the, uh, sorry, rocks mimic life in the heat pulse, 
palsied air, it's terrible weddings. Where I dance, it's a panic, the sun direct in my hair, blood jade. All day the wind rubs its back in the dust like a dispossessed genie, and distance opens and opens like a wound, hardening the new crystal ball of my heart. I grow havoc wings and mordant feet, scrabble with scarabs on their playground. Invisible midwife to prophet's shrieks, I stare down distance like stone sekhmet, riddle and, and riddle the hot sky's cinema, sandblast scores my sleep, the camel humps higher at my jokes, bites back a bitter laugh. Who wouldn't get sick of the vulture's claptrap, sphinx talk, and the rest of it? Here is where raw visions lie in a scorch in the sand to dissolve by night. Nothing lasts. I'm sick of the indignity of picking my wishbones alone, watching them whiten in the sun like dung, while Babylon flourishes in its curse and blooms with the cries of children. Part 8 In the first place, Adam's... Adam forgot Eden's lily pond and wild lilies in the veil. Having Eve, Adam forgot himself, and in the second place, while he was counting begats and gold, and while he was stomping the marriage goblet, while busy despoiling the Alpha Omega, scrolling and unscrolling the Pentateuch according to season, Adam forgot then how one Lilith tried to give him a wider balm, how even in Eden I dressed to kill in chrysoprase, beryl, lapis, opal, thirty-nine jewels and all, and now how easily might his offspring fall into gentle sighs toward me as if they'd never fallen before. They might step through mirrors to me and set all the red leopards running loose in the temples. Oh, tricky Lilith. A jade thrown into the center of pooled holy water, a disappearance ringed by widening dreams, marriages to absence as I roll graved stones away from gaping eyes and step out and all my names and disguises, a million, reviving a vow. To make Adam remember how, to ask if Eclipse can shine in hiding, to ask if Eclipse can come back with pearls concentric, to ask if the serpent curled at his hearth might earn her warmth at a proper blessing, and a proper blessing, to ask if the waters that wash my heart can be divided with prayer, walked through, turned red with defeat, to ask if dream would barter its wonder for a blood algebra, if the willow would barter her journal of excursions through all the zeros below, zero for the moon's arithmetic. For I would barter my magic chrysalis for a planter's hands, my desert panache for a bridal veil, my blatherings for the Kabbalah's the Kabbalah, the Kabbalah's shackles. Oh, I, oh, I would barter anything, my whole bizarre bazaar, to make Adam remember that my life too went in on, went on in exile. Weaving green sorrows from shapeless abandon, slithering through destructive twilights and through the mad heats of the Nile, that I was exiled without company to save what I could make of myself from air, and I would have Adam consider this. Solomon bothered to learn my tongue. I made him laugh, he made me dance to his laughter, and in the end he joined the dance. Should one forgetting come out from under the marriage canopy, let him remember how I bring the spice to espousals, fierce glitter to the ring, how I bring bright conclusions to dull premises, how I bring the eternal triangles to a point, how I dissolve at the point of panic, at the point of loss like the pain of a joke, how I transform by lay and by lie the myth that Adam forgets. What then? Could he make of me more than an immaculate conception, admit to me his children, for I would have let 
me bear some reality, for I would have him let me bear some reality. All right, there is a little more, but I will spare you guys because I guess it's like another whole page. <laughs> okay, so we've spent a hot minute swimming around with Lilith in all of her glory, um, and I really hope you enjoyed that last bit of that poem because I, I really, really love the passion of Lilith. I think it's awesome, so definitely give it a read. But anyways, let's move on to other forsaken goddesses, some of which have ties to Lilith or maybe where she originated from in the first place. So there's another figure tied to Lilith, like I literally just said, and that is the deity Lamashtu. Uh, sorry if I'm saying that incorrectly. That's how I'm going to say it the entire episode, though. <laughs> you might remember that only just a few moments ago you heard her name mentioned in the old, in the old Babylonian text about original demons alongside Lilith or the Maid of Lilu. Daughter of the heaven god Anu, Lamashtu, who is also referred to as the Lame or Lamea, is considered the most fearsome and horrible of all the ancient Mesopotamian demonesses. In some accounts, she was cast from, he from the heavens, uh, sound familiar, because she wanted to taste the blood of babies. Okay. Or dine on the flesh or feast on the flesh of unborn babies, something like that. Like many ancient cultures, the Sumerians and Babylonians attributed many of their illnesses to the likenesses of demons and ill-tempered gods. This also applied to pregnancy, childbirth, postpartum depression, etc. The demoness Lamashtu was usually the culprit when women were having difficulties during their pregnancies, had miscarriages, or if their offspring suffered birth defects. Most likely meaning she who erases an Akkadian, Lamashtu is depicted in several ways and has several different names, like other demons, demonesses, gods, and the like, but you can start to make out the similarities in the figures and the texts when you go through them. Lamashtu was thought to poison people and ruin their health, causing fevers and diseases. While this mostly affected childbearing women, men also found themselves victims of her attacks. According to legend, Lamashtu would attempt to touch a pregnant woman's stomach seven times, a number that is sacred to many cultures, in order to kill the unborn child within the womb. She was also known to steal the child away from the midwife to suckle it with her poisonous milk before killing the mother and sometimes even enjoying a healthy offering of blood and flesh from the man. If we peel back in, if we peek back, <laughs> sorry. The, f the flesh comment made me think peel. If we peek back into Stephen Langdon's Semitic Mythology volume, there are quite a few references made to Lamashtu. Quite a few. So, let's take a look. Ancient Sumerians Akkadians believed that Lamashtu was a terrifying entity that would kill children and consume the flesh and blood of men and women. Lamashtu appears in early texts in a series of 13 incantations that were created to ward her and other demons off. Here's some descriptions from the book. Following the late Assyrian edition, which adds a ritual after each incantation, this demoness is described as follows in the first incantation. She has seven names, Lame, daughter of Anu, sister of the gods of the streets, sword which shatters the head, she that kindles a fire, she whose face is horrible, controller of the slayers of the hand of Ernina. Mayest thou swear by the name of the great gods and with the birds of heaven fly away. 
The seven devils are also called the seven wicked Lame, Lamashti, and the seven Lamea, Labasi, and an incantation to protect a woman in childbirth against this dreadful child-snatching demoness describes her as the seven witches who bind men and murder maidens. Another Lamashtu figure is described as follows. A little figure. I couldn't see the figures in this, but I'm sure that you can look them up uh, in, in different museums, um, and we'll get to one in a minute that you can see. Anyways, figure 98. A stone plaque whose upper shoulder is pierced by a cord hole to suspend the amulet on a door or on the breast has the text with seven names of Lamashtu inscribed on the reverse. The obverse shows Lame Lamashtu, the lion-headed demoness, holding a double-headed serpent in each hand. A dog sucks at her right breast, a pig at her left breast. The magician in the rituals made a clay image of her, smote it with a sword, and buried it outside the wall. Here she is represented with a sword driven into her skull, and the magician has provided her with raiment and food for her journey. She has sent her away to the mountains, the sea, and her dark abode in hell. On the left may be seen a roll of clothing, a water jar, a wine jar standing in its support, a shoe, and a sandal. On the right is a centipede, between Lamashtu's legs is a scorpion, and before the ass's head is a grain sack, beside it a loaf of bread. She rides off kneeling on the back of a galloping ass. Although the ass runs, it nevertheless sails in a boat, whose prow ends in a serpent's head, serpent's head, and the poop in a bull's, bull's head. God damn it. One other description I particularly like of Lamashtu comes from an amulet that is housed at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and I, again, will link this, the site where you can view the amulet and the description in the source list. Here's the description, and you can make your own comparisons between this look and her other look that I just read to you. Like it's a fashion statement or something. The image and the text both relate to Lamashtu, daughter of the sky god Anu. This powerful demon was cast out of the heavens, and in some accounts, in some accounts because she requested to die on the flesh of human babies. Restless and angry, she roamed the earth violently attacking vulnerable creatures, especially pregnant mothers and newborns. Lamashtu is shown with a tall, sinewy human body, with stringy muscles emphasized by parallel striations in the carving. Her head is that of a lion griffin, with pointed ears and open, roaring mouth from which the tongue protrudes. She holds her arms symmetrically, bent at the elbows, with clawed lion's paws held upright in an aggressive posture. Her feet take the, take the shape of the talons of a bird of prey. In other images of Lamashtu, a puppy and a piglet are shown suckling at her pendulous breasts. <laughs> pendulous. Oh, God. The adult animals simply flank her, facing toward her. The objects surrounding her are meant to be gifts offered to placate her, a comb, spindle, and pen whose pointed end is visible beneath the broken area at top left are domestic attributes associated with women, while the animal limb in upper right may be a food offering. The arrow-shaped object pointing to her lower back is not well understood but could be intended as a weapon used against the demon. An inscription in Akkadian, written in cuneiform script, runs along the central panel, serving to imprison this fearsome creature. The text, which continues across the entire back of the amulet, is similar to that found on other Lamashtu amulets, addressing her as Exalted Lady and calling upon multiple gods to exorcise her. Over 60 Lamashtu amulets have survived, most dating to the early 1st millennium BC. So, shying away from a more fearsome goddess, let's move on to Inanna. 
I'm excited to get to her because I've always been intrigued by Inanna and think she's a powerful goddess. I was going to say motherfucker. A powerful goddess who has literally been through hell. Inanna is also referred to as Ishtar or Astarte, depending on which culture you're looking at. Sumerian, Akkadian, or Canaanite. Before we jump into the poetry and epic tales regarding her journeys, let's just briefly describe Inanna as a whole. Inanna's name can be translated to Lady of the Heavens or Lady of Heaven, among other things, and she is known as a central goddess of love and sensuality as well as a goddess of warfare. Associated with the planet Venus, Inanna is wife to Demuzi, also referred to as Tammuz, and is often worshipped by those suffering from infertility or impotence. Inanna is well known for her willing descent into the underworld, where she sat on her sister Ereshkigal's throne and was killed by the Anunnaki, though she was later returned to the upper world and her powers were restored. We will be getting into that, don't worry. Uh, we're going to be spending a hot minute on Inanna as well. Inanna is, at least in a lot of depictions, the daughter of Anu, much like Lamashtu. Though they share the same father, however, Inanna couldn't be less akin to Lamashtu. As previously mentioned, Inanna is one of the core deities in the Sumerian god tiers, and she represents the morning and the evening star, which is Venus. She is often seen with gems of lapis lazuli and carnelian, as well as gold or silver. Figures, reliefs, and other depictions of Inanna or Ishtar show a fully naked, voluptuous female figure, sometimes with wings, wearing a horned cap that indicates her status as a goddess. Other forms show her adorned with robes or standing with the robe open and standing with one foot on a lion or standing completely on the back of a lion and carrying weapons. In some of the more war-embracing portrayals, she can be seen with a beard and or other masculine features. So, in all of her glory as the supreme goddess, Inanna is married to her husband, Tammuz or Demuzi. During the ceremony, Inanna takes a ritual bath, douses herself in perfume, and throws on ceremonial robes before, you know, hooking up with Tammuz and assuming her place by him on the throne. If I didn't warn you before, this episode does contain descriptive, sometimes sexual content, so listen at your own risk. That being said, let's get into that poetry. Gwendolyn Lake, like, sorry if I butchered that, digs into these old Mesopotamian poems, songs, and such in her book aptly titled Sex and Eroticism in Mesopotamian Literature, which I'll of course link with everything else. As per usual, I gotta stop saying that. Here are a few descriptions of Inanna's song to Tammuz during their wedding ceremony before they have sexual intercourse to consummate the marriage, which was something the Sumerians thought an essential part of a wedding ceremony. I love the title. The title of this chapter is called Inanna Rejoicing in Her Vulva. Okay. In this song, she implies that my bridegroom will rejoice in me. The shepherd Dumuzi will rejoice in me. She then embarks on a highly evocative eulogy of her vulva, which is unfortunately obscure in some parts. She compares it, among others, to a horn. The heavenly barge of the moon, with its mooring ropes, the lovely crescent of the new moon, a fallow plot in the desert, a field of ducks, full of ducks, well-watered hilly land, and asks rhetorically, for me, open my vulva, for me, for me, the maiden, who is its plowman, my vulva, a wet place for me, for me, the lady, who will provide the bull? To which the audience replies, 
Oh, lady, the king will plow it for you. <laughs> and she urges him herself, plow my vulva, man of my heart. The plowing metaphor, which we often find in the bridal songs, is then not just a general euphemism for sexual intercourse, but applied more specifically to the first penetration of the vagina. The young woman is compared to a field waiting to be rendered fertile by the plow, i.e. the penis, driven by the bull, i.e. the man. It is in the context of marital intercourse that the male sexual role defines itself as the provider of fertility. Ugh. The woman joyfully participates and declares her readiness to be plowed. It is hardly a coincidence that the description of the vulva in the text above compares, captures the stages of sexual excitement in the woman. Does it? Does it though? Things continue to get sen sensual in the Epic of Gilgamesh, in which Inanna is offering herself to Gilgamesh. Here's a snippet. To Gilgamesh's beauty, great Ishtar lifted her eyes. Come, Gilgamesh, be my lover. Give me the taste of your body. Would that you were my husband and I were your wife. I'd order harnessed for you a chariot of lapis lazuli and gold, its wheels of gold and its horns of precious amber. You will drive storm demons, powerful mules, into our house, into the sweet scent of cedar wood. As you enter our house, the putrefaction priests will kiss your feet the way they do in Arata. Kings, rulers, princes will bend before you. Mountains and lands will bring their yield to you. Your goats will drop triplets and your ewes twins. Even loaded down, your donkey will overtake the mule. Your horses will win fame for their running. Your ox under its yoke will have no rival. Gilgamesh shaped his mouth to speak, saying to great Ishtar, What could I give you if I should take you as a wife? Would I give you oil for the body and fine wrappings? Would I give you bread and food? You who eat the food of the gods, you who drink the wine fit for royalty, for you they pour out libations. You are clothed with the great garment. Ah, the gap between us, if I take you in marriage. You are a cooking fire that goes out in the cold, a back door that keeps out neither wind nor storm, a palace that, palace that crushes the brave ones defending it, a well whose lid collapses, pitch that dirties one who is carrying it, a water skin that soaks the one who lifts it, limestone that crumbles in the stone wall, a battering ram that shatters, and the land of the enemy, a shoe that pinches the owner's foot. Which of your lovers have you loved forever? Which of your little shepherds has continued to please you? Come, let me name your lovers for you, for Tammuz, the lover of your youth. Year after year you set up a wailing for him. You loved the mauve-colored shepherd bird, but you seized him and broke his wing. So you would love me in my turn, and, as with them, set my fate. Okay, now that your beans were nice and rustled, let's return, or let's turn, to my favorite stories featuring Inanna, the exaltation and the descent of Inanna. Let's start with the Exaltation of Inanna, which was written by a worshipper, a high priestess to be exact, uh, who was asking Inanna for help and vengeance after being shunned and exiled. It's a hymn, and it's around 153 lines in length, so not too long. I could read you the entire thing, but I don't want to have to cut it out due to length, so I'll just link it for you to read online below. I will share some of the priestess's description of Inanna because I enjoy it. So here it is. Lady of all the divine powers, res res 
resplendent light, righteous woman clothed in radiance, beloved of On and Urak, mistress of heaven with the great pectoral jewels, who loves the good headdress befitting the office of an priestess, who has seized all seven of its divine powers. My lady, you are the guardian of the great divine powers. You have taken up the divine powers. You have hung the divine powers from your hand. You have gathered up the divine powers. You have clasped the divine powers to your breast. Like a dragon, you have deposited venom on the foreign lands. When like Ikor you roar at the earth, no vegetation can stand up to you. As a flood descending upon those foreign lands, powerful one of heaven and earth, you are their Inanna. Raining blazing fire down upon the land, endowed with divine powers by On, lady who rides upon a beast, whose words are spoken at the holy command of On. The great rites are yours. Who can fathom them? Destroyer of the foreign lands, you confer strength on the storm. Beloved of Enlil, you have made awesome terror weigh upon the land. You stand at the service of On's commands. At your battle cry, my lady, the foreign lands bow low. When humanity comes before you in awed silence at the terrifying radiance and tempest, you grasp the most grasp the most terrible of all the divine powers. Because of you, the threshold of tears is opened, and people walk along the path of the house of great lamentations. In the van of battle, all is struck down before you. With your strength, my lady, teeth can crush flint. You charge forward like a charging storm. You roar with the roaring storm. You continually thunder with ichor. You spread exhaustion with the storm winds, while your own feet remain tireless. With the lamenting balaj drum, a lament is struck up. And saving the best for last, let's talk about the descent of Inanna, which is where a huge part of the story behind Inanna and her status lies. This is another hymn or epic poem that has been translated numerous times, and I found two different translations just to have two interpretations for you, and those will also be in the sources and the reading recommendations. As much as I want to read this one to you as well, I won't. Uh, for the sake of time, but I will summarize it and give you my interpretation. So Inanna makes her way to the doors of the underworld, Kerr, and is initially accompanied by her minister Ninshubur, but Inanna gives Ninshubur specific instructions to follow once she enters the underworld as a way to safeguard her return, I think. Once Inanna pleads to be let into the underworld so that she can witness the funeral rites for her sister's husband, at least that's what she says, Inanna's sister Ereshkigal has Inanna pass through the seven gates, losing her protective jewelry and clothing along the way in order for Inanna to get to Ereshkigal's throne into the depths of the underworld. Once through the gates and naked, Ereshkigal brings Inanna to the attention of the Anuna, or Anunnaki, who basically condemn Inanna to death in the underworld for journeying there. After she is killed, her corpse is then hung from a hook on the wall. Her minister Ninshabar waited three days and nights for her return and followed her instructions to a T. Of all the gods that she had instructed, instructed Ninshabar to plead to, only Enki listened and offered assistance. Enki gave the water of life and food of life to sexless creatures and sent them to the underworld to retrieve Inanna. Here's one translation of the Kugara and Galatur doing the bidding of Enki. He gave the food of life to the Korgara, he gave the water of life to the Galator, saying, Go to the underworld, enter the doors like fleas. Ereshkigal, the queen of the underworld, is moaning, with the cries of a woman about to give birth. No linen is spread on her body, her breasts are uncovered, her hair swirls about her head like leeks. 
When she cries, oh, oh, my inside, cry also, oh, oh, your inside. When she cries, oh, oh, my outside, cry also, oh, oh, our outside. The queen will be pleased. She will offer you a gift. Ask her only for the corpse that hangs from the hook on the wall. One of you will sprinkle the food of life on it. The other will sprinkle the water of life. Inanna will arise. So they go and bring back Inanna from the underworld, and the Anunnaki says that she can't leave without providing someone to take her place and stay there. The Gala, or demons of the underworld, ask for Ninshaber, her minister, <laughs> but Inanna refuses to give up Ninshaber, instead giving up her husband, Demusi, to the Gala and the underworld. Though, luckily, he ends up getting away. Poor dude. Anyway. Inanna's divine powers are restored, and she's allowed to leave the underworld. Yay! Last but not least, we have Medusa, and we'll cover this lovely maiden briefly to pinch us off. So we're probably all somewhat familiar with the Medusa myth or legend, but let's review. Medusa is one of three Gorgon sisters, but the only one born as a mortal with fair, beautiful looks, <laughs> fair or beautiful looks, and gold hands and wings. One of Medusa's most stunning qualities was apparently her gorgeous hair. So because of her fairness, Poseidon caught wind of her, and they ended up fucking in Athena's temple. Whoops. When Athena finds out, she curses Medusa, turning her looks hideous and her hair into serpents. Sorry, my dog sneeze. Bless you. Bless you. Her looks were so repulsive, they had the ability to turn the gaze of men into stone, which made her all the more isolated. It gets worse, though, for her. Now pregnant and alone, she hides away and Perseus, jackass, comes looking for her. Using a mirror so as to not look directly at her and be turned to stone, he finds her and cuts off her head before bringing it back to I can't remember who, honestly. Because she was pregnant, two children... Her two children spring from the blood of her neck upon her beheading, and the blood that drips from her head as Perseus carries it back produces snakes. Whomever he gives the head to used it against enemies, and I think someone took a lock of hair to use it as well for something, and then someone took blood from her left side to kill people, and then blood from her right side to bring people back from the dead. So yeah, she doesn't get a good ending, and her corpse is definitely defiled, um, but I didn't want to leave Medusa out of the lineup. Reading Recommendations Inanna, Queen of Heaven and Earth by Diane Wolkenstein The Coming of Lilith, Essays in Feminism, Judaism, and Sexual Ethics, 1972-2003 by Judith Plaskow. Plaskov, whatever. The Mythology of All Races, Volume 5, Semitic, by Stephen H. Langdon. Lilith's Cave, Jewish Tales of the Supernatural, by Howard Schwartz. The Passion of Lilith, by Pamela White Hadass. Exaltation of Inanna. The Descent of Inanna. Faust, by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. The Talmud. Alphabet of Ben Sirah, Sex and Eroticism in Mesopotamian Literature by Gwendolyn Like, and then I linked a research article for you guys from the Yale Near Eastern Researches 
archive as well on Lilith, Lamash 2, etc. that I thought was interesting. All right, that'll do it for this 13th episode of the Primordia podcast, your source for strange. I'm terribly sorry you all had to wait a month for this episode, but I promise other episodes are already in the works and you won't have to wait that long again. It's been a crazy busy few weeks, let me tell ya. And now that I'm finished making excuses for myself, don't forget about the Etsy sale if you're interested. New items will be moved in shortly, um, and they're going to be mostly divination tools like Oum and runes, so stay tuned. Also, don't forget to listen to my wonderful friends over at Unearthing Paranormalcy, the podcast that digs into the paranormal and tries to find normalcy in the topic. Hopefully, I'll get to collaborate with them soon, and I'm so excited. If you're listening, I'm so excited and honored and fangirling out. Okay, as always, thank you so much for listening. Stay strange.